Chapter Eleven of Pellucidar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. Pellucidar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Eleven. Escape. Diane glanced downward and shuddered. Her tribe were hill people. They were not accustomed to swimming other than in quiet rivers and placid lakelets. It was not the steep that appalled her. It was the ocean, vast, mysterious, terrible. To dive into it from this great height was beyond her. I couldn't wonder, either. To have attempted it myself seemed too preposterous even for thought. Only one consideration could have prompted me to leap head foremost from that giddy height—suicide or at least so I thought at the moment. Quick, I urged Diane, you cannot die, but I can hold them until you reach safety. And you, she asked once more, can you dive when they come too close? Otherwise you could not escape if you waited here until I reached the bottom. I saw that she would not leave me unless she thought that I could make that frightful dive as we had seen Joag make it. I glanced once downward. Then, with a mental shrug, I assured her that I would dive the moment that she reached the boat. Satisfied, she began the descent, carefully, yet swiftly. I watched her for a moment, my heart in my mouth, lest some slight misstep, or the slipping of a finger-hold, should pitch her to a frightful death upon the rocks below. Then I turned toward the advancing Hoogians. Hoosiers, Perry dubbed them even going so far as to christen this island where Hooja held sway, Indiana. It is so marked now upon our maps. They were coming on at a great rate. I raised my revolver, took deliberate aim at the foremost warrior, and pulled the trigger. With the bark of the gun the fellow lunged forward. His head doubled beneath him. He rolled over and over two or three times before he came to a stop, to lie very quietly in the thick grass among the brilliant wild flowers. Those behind him halted. One of them hurled a javelin toward me, but it fell short. They were just beyond javelin range. There were two armed with bows and arrows. These I kept my eyes on. All of them appeared awestruck and frightened by the sound and effect of the firearm. They kept looking from the corpse to me and jabbering among themselves. I took advantage of the lull in hostilities to throw a quick glance over the edge toward Diane. She was halfway down the cliff and progressing finely. Then I turned back toward the enemy. One of the bowmen was fitting an arrow to his bow. I raised my hand. Stop! I cried. Whoever shoots at me or advances toward me, I shall kill as I killed him. I pointed at the dead man. The fellow lowered his bow. Again there was animated discussion. I could see that those who were not armed with bows were urging something upon the two who were. At last the majority appeared to prevail, for simultaneously the two archers raised their weapons. At the same instant I fired at one of them, dropping him in his tracks. The other, however, launched his missile, but the report of my gun had given him such a start that the arrow flew wild above my head. A second after, and he too was sprawled upon the sward with a round hole between his eyes. It had been a rather good shot. I glanced over the edge again. Diane was almost at the bottom. I could see Juog standing just beneath her, with his hands upstretched to assist her. A sullen roar from the warriors recalled my attention toward them. They stood shaking their fists at me and yelling insults. 
From the direction of the village I saw a single warrior coming to join them. He was a huge fellow, and when he strode among them I could tell by his bearing and their deference toward him that he was a chieftain. He listened to all they had to tell of the happenings of the last few minutes. Then, with a command and a roar, he started for me with the whole pack at his heels. All they had needed had arrived, namely a brave leader. I had two unfired cartridges in the chambers of my gun. I let the big warrior have one of them, thinking that his death would stop them all. But I guess they were worked up to such a frenzy of rage by this time that nothing would have stopped them. At any rate, they only yelled the louder as he fell, and increased their speed toward me. I dropped another with my remaining cartridge. Then they were upon me, or almost. I thought of my promise to Diane. The awful abyss was behind me, a big devil with a huge bludgeon in front of me. I grasped my six-shooter by the barrel and hurled it squarely in his face with all my strength. Then, without waiting to learn the effect of my throw, I wheeled, ran the few steps to the edge, and leaped as far out over that frightful chasm as I could. I know something of diving, and all that I know I put into that dive, which I was positive would be my last. For a couple of hundred feet I fell in horizontal position. The momentum I gained was terrific. I could feel the air almost as a solid body, so swiftly I hurtled through it. Then my position gradually changed to the vertical, and with hands outstretched I slipped through the air, cleaving it like a flying arrow. Just before I struck the water a perfect shower of javelins fell all about. My enemies had rushed to the brink and hurled their weapons after me. By a miracle I was untouched. In the final instant I saw that I had cleared the rocks and was going to strike the water fairly. Then I was in and plumbing the depths. I suppose I didn't really go very far down, but it seemed to me that I should never stop. When at last I dared curve my hands upward and avert my progress toward the surface, I thought that I should explode for air before I ever saw the sun again except through a swirl of water. But at last my head popped above the waves, and I filled my lungs with air. Before me was the boat from which Joag and Diane were clamoring. I couldn't understand why they were deserting it now, when we were about to set out for the mainland in it. But when I reached its side I understood. Two heavy javelins, missing Diane and Joag by but a hair's breadth, had sunk deep into the bottom of the dugout in a straight line with the grain of the wood, and split her almost in two from stem to stern. She was useless. Juog was leaning over a nearby rock, his hand outstretched to aid me in clamoring to his side. Nor did I lose any time in availing myself of his proffered assistance. An occasional javelin was still dropping perilously close to us, so we hastened to draw as close as possible to the cliffside, where we were comparatively safe from the missiles. Here we held a brief conference, in which it was decided that our only hope now lay in making for the opposite end of the island as quickly as we could, and utilizing the boat that I had hidden there to continue our journey to the mainland. Gathering up three of the least damaged javelins that had fallen about us, we set out upon our journey, keeping well toward the south side of the island, which Jog said was less frequented by the Hoogians than the central portion where the river ran. I think that this ruse must have thrown our pursuers off our track, since we saw nothing of them, nor heard any sound of pursuit during the greater portion of our march the length of the island. 
but the way Juag had chosen was rough and roundabout, so that we consumed one or two more marches in covering the distance than if we had followed the river. This it was which proved our undoing. Those who sought us must have sent a party up the river immediately after we escaped, for when we came at last on to the river trail not far from our destination, there can be no doubt but that we were seen by Hoogens who were just ahead of us on the stream. The result was that as we were passing through a clump of bush a score of warriors leaped out upon us, and before we could scarce strike a blow in defense had disarmed and bound us. For a time thereafter I seemed to be entirely bereft of hope. I could see no ray of promise in the future, only immediate death for Juog and me, which didn't concern me much in the face of what lay in store for Diane. Poor child! What an awful life she had led! From the moment that I had first seen her chained in the slave caravan of the Mahars until now, a prisoner of a no less cruel creature, I could recall but a few brief intervals of peace and quiet in her tempestuous existence. Before I had known her, Jubal, the ugly one, had pursued her across a savage world to make her his mate. She had eluded him and finally had slain him, but terror and privations and exposure to fierce beasts had haunted her footsteps during all her lonely flight from him. And when I had returned to the outer world, the old trials had recommenced with Hooja in Jubal's role. I could almost have wished for death to vouchsafe her that peace which fate seemed to deny her in this life. I spoke to her on the subject, suggesting that we expire together. "'Do not fear, David,' she replied. "'I shall end my life before ever Hooja can harm me. But first I shall see that Hooja dies.' She drew from her breast a little leathern thong, to the end of which was fastened a tiny pouch. "'What have you there?' I asked. "'Do you recall that time you stepped upon the thing you call viper in your world?' she asked. I nodded. "'The accident gave you the idea for the poisoned arrows with which we fitted the warriors of the Empire,' she continued. "'And, too, it gave me an idea. For a long time I have carried a viper's fang in my bosom. It has given me strength to endure many dangers, for it has always assured me immunity from the ultimate insult.' I am not ready to die yet. First let Hooja embrace the viper's fang. So we did not die together, and I am glad now that we did not. It is always a foolish thing to contemplate suicide, for no matter how dark the future may appear today, tomorrow may hold for us that which will alter our whole life in an instant, revealing to us nothing but sunshine and happiness. So, for my part, I shall always wait for tomorrow. In Blucidar, where it is always today, the wait may not be so long, and so it proved for us. As we were passing a lofty flat-topped hill through a park-like wood, a perfect network of fiber-ropes fell suddenly about our guard, enmeshing them. A moment later a horde of our friends, the hairy gorilla men, with the mild eyes and long faces of sheep, leaped upon them. It was a very interesting fight. I was sorry that my bonds prevented me from taking part in it, but I urged on the brute men with my voice and cheered old Gergerger, their chief, each time that his mighty jaws crunched out the life of a Hoogen. When the battle was over we found that a few of our captors had escaped, but the majority of them lay dead about us. The gorilla men paid no further attention to them. Gergerger turned to me. 
Gurgurgur and all his people are your friends, he said. One saw the warriors of the sly one and followed them. He saw them capture you, and then he flew to the village as fast as he could go and told me all that he had seen. The rest you know. You did much for Gurgurgur and Gurgurgur's people. We shall always do much for you. I thanked him, and when I had told him of our escape and our destination, he insisted on accompanying us to the sea with a great number of his fierce males. Nor were we at all loath to accept his escort. We found the canoe where I had hidden it, and bidding Gurgurgur and his warriors farewell, the three of us embarked for the mainland. I questioned Jog upon the feasibility of attempting to cross to the mouth of the great river of which he had told me, and up which he said we might paddle almost sorry, but he urged me not to attempt it, since we had but a single paddle and no water or food. I had to admit the wisdom of his advice, but the desire to explore this great waterway was strong upon me, arousing in me at last a determination to make the attempt after first gaining the mainland and rectifying our deficiencies. We landed several miles north of Thuria, in a little cove that seemed to offer protection from the heavier seas which sometimes run even upon these usually Pacific oceans of Pellucidar. Here I outlined to Diane and Jog the plans I had in mind. They were to fit the canoe with a small sail, the purposes of which I had to explain to them both, since neither had ever seen or heard of such a contrivance before. Then they were to hunt for food, which we could transport with us, and prepare a receptacle for water. These two latter items were more in Jog's line, but he kept muttering about the sail and the wind for a long time. I could see that he was not even half convinced that any such ridiculous contraption could make a canoe move through the water. We hunted near the coast for a while, but were not rewarded with any particular luck. Finally we decided to hide the canoe and strike inland in search of game. At Juog's suggestion we dug a hole in the sand at the upper edge of the beach and buried the craft, smoothing the surface over nicely and throwing aside the excess material we had excavated. Then we set out away from the sea. Traveling in Thuria is less arduous than under the midday sun which perpetually glares down on the rest of Pellucidar's surface, but it has its drawbacks, one of which is the depressing influence exerted by the everlasting shade of the land of awful shadow. The farther inland we went, the darker it became, until we were moving at last through an endless twilight. The vegetation here was sparse and of a weird, colorless nature, though what did grow was wondrous in shape and form. Often we saw a huge leedy or beasts of burden striding across the dim landscape, browsing upon the grotesque vegetation, or drinking from the slow and sullen rivers that run down from the leedy plains to empty into the sea in Thuria. What we sought was either a thag, a sort of gigantic elk, or one of the larger species of antelope, the flesh of either of which dries nicely in the sun. The bladder of the thag would make a fine water bottle, and its skin, I figured, would be a good sail. We traveled a considerable distance inland, entirely crossing the land of awful shadow, and emerging at last upon that portion of the leedy plains which lies in the pleasant sunlight. Above us the pendant world revolved upon its axis, 
filling me especially, and Diane to an almost equal state, with wonder and insatiable curiosity as to what strange forms of life existed among the hills and valleys and along the seas and rivers which we could plainly see. Before us stretched the horizonless expanses of vast Pellucidar, the Leedy Plains rolling up about us, while hanging high in the heavens to the northwest of us, I thought I discerned the many towers which marked the entrances to the distant Mahar city, whose inhabitants preyed upon the Thurians. Juog suggested that we travel to the northeast, where he said, upon the verge of the plain, we would find a wooded country in which game should be plentiful. Acting upon his advice, we came at last to a forest jungle through which wound innumerable game paths. In the depths of this forbidding wood we came upon the fresh spore of thag. Shortly after, by careful stalking, we came within javelin range of a small herd. Selecting a great bull, Juog and I hurled our weapons simultaneously, Diane reserving hers for an emergency. The beast staggered to his feet, bellowing. The rest of the herd was up and away in an instant only the wounded bull remaining with lowered head and roving eyes searching for the foe. Then Juog exposed himself to the view of the bull. It is a part of the tactics of the hunt, while I stepped to one side behind a bush. The moment that the savage beast saw Juog, he charged him. Juog ran straight away, that the bull might be lured past my hiding place. On he came, tons of mighty bestial strength and rage. Diane had slipped behind me. She, too, could fight a thag, should emergency require. Ah, oh, such a girl! A rightful empress of a stone age by every standard which two worlds might bring to measure her. Crashing down toward us came the bull-thag, bellowing and snorting with the power of a hundred outer earthly bulls. When he was opposite me I sprang for the heavy mane that covered his huge neck. To tangle my fingers in it was the work of but an instant. Then I was running along at the beast's shoulder. Now the theory upon which this hunting custom is based is one long ago discovered by experience, and that is that a thag cannot be turned from his charge once he has started toward the object of his wrath, so long as he can still see the thing he charges. He evidently believes that the man clinging to his mane is attempting to restrain him from overtaking his prey, and so he pays no attention to this enemy who, of course, does not retard the mighty charge in the least. Once in the gate of the plunging bull, it was but a slight matter to vault to his back, as cavalrymen mount their chargers upon the run. Juog was still running, in plain sight, ahead of the bull. His speed was but a trifle less than that of the monster that pursued him. These Pellucidarians are almost as fleet as deer. Because I am not is one reason that I am always chosen for the close-in work of the thag hunt. I could not keep in front of a charging thag long enough to give the killer time to do his work. I learned that the first and last time I tried it. Once astride the bull's neck, I drew my long stone knife, and setting the point carefully over the brute's spine, drove it home with both hands. At the same instant I leaped clear of the stumbling animal. Now no vertebrate can progress far with a knife through his spine, and the thag is no exception to the rule. The fellow was down instantly. As he wallowed, Juog returned, and the two of us leaped in when an opening afforded the opportunity and snatched our javelins from his side. Then we danced about him, more like two savages than anything else, 
until we got the opening we were looking for, when simultaneously our javelins pierced his wild heart, stilling it forever. The fag had covered considerable ground from the point at which I had leaped upon him. When after dispatching him I looked back for Diane, I could see nothing of her. I called aloud, but receiving no reply, set out at a brisk trot to where I had left her. I had no difficulty in finding the self-same bush behind which we had hidden, but Diane was not there. Again and again I called to be rewarded only by silence. Where could she be? What could have become of her in the brief interval since I had seen her standing just behind me? End of chapter 11